We're good to go. Okay. So I was thinking of just telling you a little bit about the journey God has has taken us on to lead us to where we are now, and then spending a little time uh, looking at a passage in the Bible and then using some of the time that we have left at the end just to have some discussion and find out what you might be interested in, just to let you know a little bit about where we have come from. Debbie and I actually met in Lynchburg, Virginia, and Chris mentioned that he and I had met uh, there at that time also, Liberty University and Thomas Road Baptist Church, and actually Debbie and I were both working on staff at Thomas Road Baptist Church. I was working in their missions office, taking groups of people to different countries in the world, and had an opportunity to be in, at that, up that point, I think 30-some or so different countries on short-term missions trips, taking groups of people for exposure and building and some evangelistic campaigns and different things like that. And Debbie was working in the counseling office as the administrative um, executive secretary there in the counseling office. And that's where God allowed us to meet and get to know each other and finally figure out that um, that we should spend our life together and enjoying each other and enjoying Him together. And so that was... We've been married for just over 27 years now and, and doing that. And we were there working for a few years and actually taking, like I said, groups of people around the world and enjoying that very much and had a chance to be exposed to some of the different needs in many different parts of the world and see uh, what God was doing and what was going on and some things that <laughs> where things weren't going on and where not very much was going on. And after a while, God just kind of kept bringing it back to us, the idea that, uh, you know, if you left here, they would re- be able to replace you in a week. <laughs> there would probably be lots of applications for the job that you have, and they would have no trouble replacing you. And lots of these other places that you are going, there aren't other people applying to do that, and there are lots of needs those places. So if you're willing to do that, then what are you doing here? They could replace you here, and they're not replacing you there. And... God just brought that back to us a few times over and over, and we thought, yeah, that's right. And we had been able to spend some time uh, in Europe and particularly in France and really had the idea that we probably saw less going on as far as gospel witness in France than just about anywhere that we saw in most places in the world. And God kept bringing that area back to our hearts and our minds and led us to go there. So finally, in uh, 1984, we moved over there into the Paris metropolitan area uh, with the idea of you know, spending our lives there in a pastoral ministry and church planting, evangelism. And we're able to spend the first um, four, almost five years in the Paris area working with another, a church that another missionary had already started. His name was Paul de Dion. He was with the Baptist Bible Fellowship. Some of you might know him. He had moved there and, and begun that ministry, and we were able to get involved with it and do our language study there and start helping out. And then he eventually moved on and left that work. A lot of his gifting was the... The, the pioneering and the evangelism, but not as much the, the training the new leaders to take over. So he asked us if we would be willing to, to stay there and do that in that work and, and train some local leadership and turn the church over to them. 
which we were able to do, and left there at the end of 88 then and moved out into uh, the west northwestern part of France in Normandy, right along the English Channel. The, a lot of you have heard Second World War, Normandy invasion. That's right where it was, Omaha Beach. We were at, uh, moved into a town called Bayeux, which claims to be the first city liberated during the Normandy invasion. There was no um, Bible-preaching church of any kind in that town, no Protestant or evangelical or any kind of church that was, that was uh, preaching the Bible. And we're able to move there and start meeting people and witnessing and just saw God uh, begin blessing there. Obviously, He had prepared people's hearts. We didn't know what to expect when we moved there. We actually have friends and know of missionaries that have moved into some cities like that in Europe um, and it taking, you know, 10 years or more sometime before they see the first convert. Uh, when you, it's a little bit different when you're working in some places in very postmodern Europe. If we go up to someone and, you know, in witnessing to them and would say, you know, Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for your sins, it would look at you like you're speaking Martian. I mean, that makes absolutely no sense. First of all, Jesus Christ never existed or never lived, or if he did, he was just some, you know, historical teacher. The Son of God, well, of course, everyone knows that there is no God and no you know, halfway intelligent person in the 21st century still believes that there is a God. That's something that people used to believe way back before we had science and knew better. And, you know, died for your sins. Well, of course, everyone knows there is no such thing as sin. There is no right and wrong. Everything is relative. Uh, we have seen uh, surveys that were done in Europe where they ask people, do you believe that you can ever say that any given act is right or wrong? I mean, whether it's love or giving or murder or rape or whatever it is, can you, can you take any act and say, yes, that's always right or that's always wrong? Only one in seven people said yes. Six out of seven said no. You can't, it's all just depends on the circumstances. It's all relative. So died for your sins, there's, there's no understanding of that and no meaning of it. And so even in witnessing and in Europe and in France, many times we would spend three or four years uh, talking regularly and witnessing and praying for people before we actually see them get to the point of being able to admit that, okay, yes, maybe it's possible in the 21st century for a relatively intelligent person to believe that a God exists. And then... You know, okay, to get to the point that, you know, yes, he does, or even probably does, and if so, what are the ramifications of that for my life? So I can be a many-year process, and usually witnessing uh, and seeing people come to Christ in Europe isn't a, you know, one-time thing, and they will accept it the first time. Usually it's a many-year process of talking with them. Uh, but there had been some people that God had been preparing their hearts, and we saw people coming to Christ there and accepting Him, and then, you know, being discipled and taught, and we were able to stay there for uh, seven years, and then leave that church with another couple that we had been partnering with to finish the process of turning it over to um, French people and the French Christians there. Actually, they invited us back, what was it, about a year and a half ago, 
now to speak at their missions conference. And of course, now they are supporting missionaries. And you cannot believe how exciting that was, how thrilling to go back there and see some of those early Christians that had come to the Lord uh, when the church had first started back in late 80s, 89, 90, and see that they were still following Christ and have them introduce us to, oh, here is a friend of mine who I led to the Lord, and here is their sister that they led to the Lord and here is their uncle that they led to the Lord and see third and fourth and fifth generation Christians who had come to know Christ through the witness of the others. That is just absolutely thrilling. And to see that church uh, there and serving God. So we were able to be there for about seven years and uh, then went down to the the southern part of France, right on the southern coast, and there was actually, we were just finishing the work that we were doing in the church in Normandy. As you know, the work of a church planter is to work himself out of a job. You go there with the idea of trying to train other people to do what you're doing so you can turn it over to them. So we were just finishing that up, and there was a a new missionary. He was not actually a younger missionary. He was a man who had been pastoring in the States and was 50 years old and came to France and wanted to start a church there in southern France and hadn't started a church in Europe before and asked us if we would come there and, and help him and work with him. So we were able to go down and do that in the town of Montpellier, uh, which you could really only describe as like the Silicon Valley of Europe and of France especially. It is uh, where all of the high-tech and computer research type facilities are. There is no manufacturing or industry in that town. They actually advertise themselves, the Montpellier Chamber of Commerce, as being the number one city in Europe in terms of gray matter. And the whole city is research facilities and universities. And so it gives it a very interesting um, personality and mix, very cosmopolitan flavor, and we're able to help uh, see a church started there that had both a uh, an outreach, a local congregation, of course, outreach to the, to the local French people, and also an, an outreach to the international English-speaking community, since there are so many foreigners drawn to that city for all the universities and research facilities. Um, during that time that we were doing all of those things, God was also doing something else in our, in our hearts and lives. And from the early time, even in the, those first couple of years that we were in the Paris area, we started seeing something that we hadn't anticipated at all. We went to France as missionaries not even thinking about the fact that missionaries and pastors and Christian workers are real people. Had that occurred to anyone here? <laughs> and, and real people have problems sometimes. And real people need help sometimes and go through difficulties and go through crises. And I guess in some of the churches that, that we had grown up in, that wasn't talked about a lot. And the, I guess the missionaries that came to the uh, conferences um, were so perfect. I mean, they were just super spiritual and perfect, and they didn't have any problems. And so that's what we thought. 
And, of course, pastors never have problems either. And it hadn't occurred to us that they really do. And so while we were there on the field, we started seeing, even in the, in the uh, mid to late 80s, uh, during a certain amount of time, several crisis events happening. We saw uh, the marriage of a missionary family that we were very close to fall apart. And we saw a family uh, crumble and just have total conflict between teenagers and parents and so much conflict in that family falling apart. We actually saw two different situations with national um, European pastors there, church leaders, who attempted suicide. And we were seeing these things going on, and unfortunately in all of these instances they ended up leaving the ministry and leaving the field. And we start thinking, wow, God must want something to be done about this. These are God's children and His servants, and He loves them and cares for them, and He wants them to be cared for. And it doesn't make sense to just allow them to be on their own and crash and leave the ministry like that. Someone needs to be reaching out to them and trying to help them through these difficult times so that they can stay together and stay in the ministry. And it just so happens that my background and training is kind of bivocational, both missions and pastoral and counseling. And so uh, we really believed that God was giving us a burden for some of them and began just reaching out informally to some of those that we saw really going through struggles and saying, hey, if you'd like to talk, you know, we're here. And from that, that just began, you know, mushrooming, word of mouth. Then they would see their colleagues in another town um, going through trouble and saying, hey, you really need to make, you know, some time to go, you know, spend some time with the Lugers. And just mushrooming, taking more and more of our time until I think it was like 92 or 93 uh, that the mission finally made that an official part of our job description. Hey, this is something that you need to be doing officially and formalizing it. And then since 97, it has been our, our primary responsibility. Um, helping Christian workers, uh, developing them, encouraging them, strengthening them so they can stay on the field. And we had no idea where God would take this. And at the time, we were thinking, you know, sure, a few of the people around us where we were working. And as it has happened over the years and as this has developed, God has been opening doors and then um, uh, mission leaders would would be talking to someone that we would have helped in, you know, France or Belgium or Switzerland or one of the places close to us. But they say, hey, we also have some people that need help in, you know, Eastern Europe or Central Asia or the Middle East or Africa. You know, could you possibly work with them too? And now, since we have started keeping track over about the last 10 years, uh, God has opened the doors and allowed us to work with um, Christian workers of just over 50 different nationalities. Not just American missionaries in that part of the country, but um, Africans who are church leaders in their own countries, and Asians and Eastern Europeans and Africans who are missionaries who are being sent to other countries as missionaries. So Christian workers of 50 different nationalities actually working in 100 different countries. Uh, we say Europe and the surrounding regions is kind of our primary focus. So Western Eastern Europe, 
especially northern Africa, but then also sub-Sahara Africa, Middle East, Central Asia, but then sometimes even beyond. We get requests from all over the world, and we usually try to uh, have them find help close by if it is available, and that sometimes it's not available. So we end up working with people from even, you know, East Asia or South America or different places. And we began doing it as a responsive ministry. We would see uh, Christian workers in crisis or needing help and, and respond to that and help them through those crisis events. And then after a few years, we noticed, you know what? We're seeing the same things over and over. There are certain problems that just keep cropping up. So instead of just standing at the bottom of the cliff with the ambulance and helping put, back, put them back together, how about maybe we start trying to build a guardrail at the top of the cliff to keep quite so many of them from falling off? And so we started developing materials that would provide tools that Christian workers could use to avoid some of the main problems. And going to uh, different mission agencies and ministry teams all throughout that part of the world and providing training for their workers that would help them to avoid some of the most common problems. And that is even more fun doing the proactive side of it and helping see them having the tools and be strengthened and be encouraged. And we say that, you know, of course, wherever God's workers are strengthened and encouraged, the light of the gospel shines brighter. And uh, we had no idea this would be the case, but actually, literally, we have had the opportunity to work with thousands of Christian workers now over the, the last number of years. And it has just been... Thrilling! It's been such a privilege for us. The way we look at it is God cares about His servants and wants them to be strengthened and encouraged and cared for, and we just have the tremendous privilege of being the ones that get to be in it with Him to do that. And while He is caring for His workers, we get to be there along with Him. And that's been thrilling. And... That kind of brings you up to, to where we are now. We're going to have a little bit of time at the end, I think. If you have some questions about us or our ministry, maybe we'll be able to talk a little bit about that. We wanted to spend a little bit of time this morning just looking at a passage of Scripture. And uh, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite books to study. is the first book in the Bible. This is not a trick question necessarily. It's not the first book in the order that they are written in the canon. It's the one that was probably the first one written, which was Job. Job. This is a sharp group. See, I knew it. I knew this is a group that had been well taught. Yes. And it's so interesting studying Job just from that standpoint and realizing that, hey, when Job was written, they didn't have a Bible. So when Job went to have his morning devotions, how much of the Bible did he have to read? <laughs> he didn't have any. And so we have a lot of advantages that they didn't have and that he didn't have. Um, so that's interesting to see their images of God and their perceptions of the people in the world and of God based on the fact that they didn't have a written scripture at that time. This passage we're going to be looking at this morning is actually in Job chapter 33. And it's kind of interesting in that it's a description of what was happening, the condition of people in the world. 
And he's giving this description of this is what it's like in the world. And what's fascinating about it is this was written about how long ago? Okay, here's another quiz question, or not a quiz. This is a challenge? No, what is it? It's not a quiz. It's a... No, that's a test. A quiz is... Quest. Okay, this is a quest. Quest question. So, about how long ago was Job written? Job was a contemporary, give you a little hint, Job was a contemporary probably of Abraham who lived at about a little before that. That would have been right about after David and Solomon were about 1000 B.C. So Job and Abraham were like Middle Bronze period, so that was like 2000 B.C. So we are 2000 A.D. now, so okay, let's do the math. That was about... 4,000 years ago, right. So in those 4,000 years, we can see that a lot of things haven't changed that much. So we're going to be looking, um, starting, we're not going to have time to read all of it. A lot of this is a description of the condition of people in the world. And this part is actually being spoken by a guy named Elihu, which was the fourth one. And it's kind of interesting, for me anyway, significant to realize it wasn't any of the, the three friends, the Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, um, whom God later said just a few chapters later, what they said about me wasn't true, and I'm mad at them. So this wasn't included in that. And this is a part that seems to be a pretty accurate description of what was going on. And in this passage, we, we see uh, Job chapter 33 And we see even in verse 12, it's kind of significant. Let me get back up to verse 12. One of the reasons he was saying this, actually, Elihu was giving this description as a way of giving glory to God and wanting to make sure even that Job was giving glory to God. We know that Job, you know, we're not going to take time to look at the whole thing, but Job was confused about why all the bad stuff was going on with him, and he was, in a way, defending his own righteousness. All these other three friends were spending so much time saying, obviously, you're being punished because you're such a bad person. And Job was saying, you know, you know, I don't really think that's it. I really don't think I did anything quite that bad. I've been trying to do what was right. But in the, in the uh, process of basically defending himself and saying that he thought that what he was doing wasn't that bad, he did come pretty close to crossing the line a few times and even questioning, you know, what's God thinking here punishing me when I really have been you know, trying to be the one that followed him. And Elihu calls him on that a little bit. And he says uh, in verse 12, Behold, in this you are not right. You know, you've gotten a little bit close to even accusing God of unrighteousness in defending your own righteousness. Um, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. And he's saying, okay, we need to just be careful that we set the record straight and remember that all glory does belong to God. And God is righteous. And we need to be careful, even if we are talking about you know, our own righteousness and the fact that we are trying to follow him and do what's right, not to accuse God of unrighteousness. So then it goes on and he's describing the condition of the world. And it's fascinating some of the things that we see that he's describing here. Let's look starting in verse 18. Condition of people. It says, he, this is God in this case, he keeps back his soul from the pit 
and his life from perishing by the sword. So this is talking about God and his relation to the world. So what's going on here? And it's saying that in part of what's going on is that that people in the world are on their way to the pit, which is what? Right. Immediately, the grave and ultimately, spiritually, hell. And that's where people without God are headed. And it basically kind of gives you that image of, okay, here's the pit and kind of standing there with the foot on the banana peel and about ready to go in. And it's only the goodness of God that is keeping any of us alive so that we don't go there immediately. The Bible tells us every breath in our nostrils is a gift from God that keeps us alive for that moment. So it's starting off with this description of what's going on with people already, showing that we are all in very imminent spiritual danger. There is we are we are on our way to the pit just without the mercy of God that's keeping us from going there. And his life from perishing by the sword. So we see the physical danger there, both elements of it. The ending of the physical life and ultimately the spiritual danger of eternal separation from God. So this is the backdrop of the condition of people in the world. And that's kind of a a wake-up call right away, isn't it? There are billions of people around the world right now and this is the beginning of the description of what's going on with most of them. They are on their way to the pit. And they are in ultimate spiritual danger and many of them physical danger. And ultimately, their life is going to end. And they're all in physical danger. Going on, verse 19, He is also chastened with pain on his bed and enduring strife in his bones. So, This is now talking about physical pain, suffering, that a lot of people in the world are experiencing physical suffering. We don't have to go very far or turn on the news for very long before we can see a lot of people in the world that are enduring physical suffering, people that are victims of of earthquakes and flooding and war and um, disease. And you probably don't have to go very far from your own neighborhood, do you? Maybe from your own family or neighborhood or office or school. And there are people all around us who are enduring physical suffering. And it usually doesn't stop there. Look at verse 20. So that his life is sick of bread and his soul desirable food. It doesn't stop at the physical suffering. It bleeds over into emotional suffering. It says many people in the world have gotten to the point where they are just sick of life where they even get to the point where they don't want to eat anymore, they don't want to live anymore. And some even to the point where they would consider ending their lives. Verse 21, And his flesh wastes away, not seen, and his bones laid bare, they were not seen. This is talking about just desperation. I mean, some people get to the point where they have just wasted away to nothing and they're in a state of desperation. Some of it because of the physical want. I mean, we look at areas of the world where there's famine and starvation. Some of it because of emotional suffering. The people have gotten to a state of, of emotional desperation. 
And then it brings it back there in verse 22, again, kind of summing this up. Yes, his soul draws near the pit, to the pit and his life to the dealers of death or to the executioners. So even reminding us again, you know, people are on their way to an eternity without Christ. And we can look in different parts of the world or with different people, different of these things become more prominent, don't they? With some people, we can look at them and the physical needs are more obvious. Or the physical suffering is more obvious. Some people, it's the emotional suffering that's more obvious. For everyone, if they don't already know Christ, the, the, the spiritual danger is very real and very imminent. I think it's a good just practice for us to get into as we're looking at people around us to think, well, where are they in this description? Where are their greatest needs? Where is their suffering? My colleagues and my neighbors or the people in China or the Philippines or Romania or the different places, where would be their their main needs? Would it be, are the physical things more obvious, the emotional things more obvious, the spiritual things more obvious? Even as we're working with Christian workers, in different parts of the world, Christian workers face different kinds of challenges. In some parts of the world, the physical danger is very real. We have good friends who are uh, missionaries working among the Somali people, a tribe that is uh, staunchly Muslim. And the people in this tribe, they have gone there to help them. There is tremendous starvation and want. These people are just in really bad shape. And so these missionaries have gone there and have been doing a number of humanitarian aid projects uh, as a way of giving a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and being able to present the gospel to them. And the people in that tribe have told them, you know, you don't realize it, but we are all as people. And you think that your God has sent you here, but actually we know that Allah sent you here to take care of us. And so we're going to take everything you have to give, and then we're going to kill you, and Allah will send someone else to take care of us. And they know that's not an empty threat because they've done it to others. And they remain there sharing the gospel in that situation, realizing that their life is in danger on a daily basis. In other places, like um, Europe, there's not the immediate physical danger. People ask us sometimes, is France or is Europe a hard place to be a missionary? I have to say, well, no, not really. It's not hard. In a sense, no one's throwing rocks at us. No one is stoning us. No one is threatening to kill us. Uh, But it is a slow place. And we have, to be re- we have to realize and be ready for the fact that there will be intense uh, emotional and spiritual resistance. And that this is one of Satan's strongholds and he's not going to give it up easily. And so the, the difficulty and the suffering even of the Christian workers and the Christians in this area is not physical danger, but it's a lot of times... Emotional danger, the discouragement of constantly swimming upstream, constantly, uh, it's like an athletic team that would never get to play a home game. You're always playing, every game is an away game. You're always playing by their rules on their home turf, and it's always seemingly going against you. 
So there are different challenges in different areas and different parts of the world. And I know even in the people that you will have contact with, possibly in your family, your neighborhood, your work, wherever God sends you, there will be people with different obvious needs, physical or emotional, or sometimes the needs won't be obvious and you'll have to look carefully for them. And we know that everyone has a spiritual need and everyone is in danger of spiritual separation. Let's go on. Let's look at verse 24, the description. Then God is gracious to him and says, Well, deliver him from going down to the pit, for I have found a ransom. I found a redeemer. Wow, all of a sudden this is different. Now God is saying, You know what? We're going to be gracious to this person. We're going to deliver him. Uh, God is gracious to him. God, so he's, he's, show, he's finding God's grace and deliverance, and all of a sudden there's a redeemer that is coming into the picture. Job didn't know who that redeemer was, did he? We do. Who's the redeemer? Jesus Christ, who died for us. Right. We know that God sent his son to be that redeemer so that we could know his his grace and his deliverance. And when the redeemer comes into the picture and now God's grace and deliverance come into the picture, all of a sudden everything changes. Look at verse 25. And his flesh shall be fresher than in vigor or he shall find his youth again, and he shall return to the days of his youth. So we're finding new life and new strength coming into the picture. Verse 26, And he shall pray to God, and he will be gracious to him, and he shall see his face with joy, for he will restore to man his righteousness. So now there is restored relationship with God. This person is praying to God, and because of that restored relationship, he's finding God's grace, uh, the, the relationship, seeing God's face. He is finding joy. He's finding restoration. Wow, all of a sudden, it's like everything has changed, hasn't it? Then verse 27 is fascinating. This person who has now found this renewed relationship, and he will observe two men, which means you know he's going to say to the people around him, hey, guess what? I've sinned and perverted righteousness. Sorry. He'll observe and say, I have sinned and perverted righteousness, and it was not equally repaid to me. So he's going to start giving testimony to those around him, saying, hey, guess what? I sinned. I deserved to pay for my sins. I didn't have to because God paid for them for me that as soon as we see this renewed relationship with God, the person immediately starts um, finding other people around him who he can explain that to. He has, re he has redeemed my soul from passing over into the pit, and my life shall see the light. So new light. Lo, all these things God does two or three times with a man. This is an interesting statement that basically is trying to communicate the idea that, hey, God's ready to do this. He's there. He's standing with his arms wide open. He's ready to do this. The only thing he's waiting for is for us, for us to do our part. To bring back his soul from the pit and be lighted with the light of the living. It's amazing the difference in these two parts of the narrative, isn't it? That first part was all suffering 
and desperation and discouragement. And now this last part is just totally changed. It's new relationship and joy and grace and redemption in life. And when I read this, I think, wow, this is like like too much change too fast. What in the world could possibly make the difference between those two halves of this narrative and this discussion? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but we happen to skip a verse. And that verse is what makes the difference between the two halves of the narrative. And that verse is verse 23. And what can make the difference in the world between desperation and renewed relationship with God and hope is this verse 23. It says, but if there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand to declare for man God's righteousness. That's what can make all the difference in the world. It uses these two terms that are fascinating. It says, if there is a messenger... And some translations actually say an angel, because it's the same word. Angel and messenger are the same word. This is really more the idea of a human messenger. But okay, we have, um, okay, we have the word messenger. The other word that it uses in this translation is mediator. I don't know if it's the same in yours. In some, it actually says interpreter. Some translations use the word intercessor. It's the idea of, of a go-between. So he says, the difference between a world with no hope and a world with renewed life and hope is a person who will be an interceding messenger, the go-between. The person who will take God's message to the people in the world and tell the people in the world about God's righteousness and the forgiveness that He's willing to give them and at the same time act as that go-between the other way the intercessor, the mediator, and take the needs of the people of the world before God in prayer and ask God to pour out His mercy on them. And so even in this first book of the Bible, it starts describing the difference between a world without hope, a world of desperation, and a world of new life and new hope. The difference is people who will stand up and say, I will be that interceding messenger. I will take God's message to the people around me and the people of the world, and I will intercede for those people before God, for a loving God. Is this an easy thing? Is this something that everyone is going to do? What's that next phrase? Gives us a clue about that, doesn't it? One among a thousand. Says, yeah. This is something special. And this is something that we're going to have to be serious about and stand up to the plate and say, yes, I will be that one among a thousand that God can use to take His message to the world, to the people around me who need Him and have no other hope, and I will be interceding and mediating for those people before God. That's what we want to be in the part of the world where God has taken us. And we hope and pray that that's what you will be here and in the part of the world where God would lead you. And we would just hope and pray that today everyone in this church would stand up and say, yes, I will be that one among a thousand. And I will be that interceding messenger to take God's message to the world and to cry out to God for their salvation. 
thank you. You know, actually, we're not going to have a lot of time. I think we have to leave here at 10.30, right? We will be around here all day, and we would love to talk to you and answer some questions. Uh, if you would like to have just a reminder to pray for us, we have some cards with us. I will leave a couple right here uh, that you could come by and get, or you could see Deb and I. We'd be happy to, to give them to you. We would. Um, we ask you sincerely to to pray for us. It is... We take that very seriously and know that nothing can be done without God's power and His protection. And we we know that that is given in response to the prayers of His people. So we would ask you to do that. Thank you so much for letting us be here with you this week. We have really enjoyed getting to meet some of you and spend some time with you. We appreciate it. Amen. That's just good stuff.